The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for coming this evening. It's amazing to see uh, Q out the door. I know it's not nice to have to queue, but uh, it's such an exciting endorsement of the uh, event on a cold January evening to see so many people here. This is the seventh event in a three-year series, Out of the Ashes, organized by the uh, Long Room Hub in association with the project of which I'm uh, director, the Beyond 2022 project. I want to thank um, the Reynolds, and the amazing team at the Long Room Hub for their support uh, across the last two years. We're really at the halfway point now. And across those three years, we are setting our own uh, national calamity, the destruction in 1922, in as wide a context as we can. In the first year, we looked at collecting and collections. This year, we're looking at destroying and destruction. Next year, as we move towards the centenary of 1922, we're looking at cultural recovery. And in the very first lecture of the series, it was November 2018, the director of the um, Biblioteca Alexandrina, the Library of Alexandria, spoke uh, here in Trinity on the Library of Alexandria, destroyed in antiquity many times, and then uh, wonderfully reimagined and reborn as a living library today. And the most memorable moment in that lecture, everybody who was there, I think, you may remember it, it was spine tingling. He showed the moment when in the Arab Spring, the young people of Alexandria surrounded the library. They linked arms to protect the library, as if to say, this collection is our collection and it is not to be touched. It's a very powerful moment. In this second year of the series, it has been more sobering. We've been looking at destruction. And although my own project is looking at reconstruction, we have to look also at 1922 in the face. Look at what we lost, what it meant, what remained, and what are the lessons for today. And that is what today's panel uh, event is designed to do. We have three amazing speakers who are going to take us from uh, 1922 and the fire to the extraordinary conservation work uh, that's currently being uh, achieved uh, to the uh, lessons that 1922 tells us about how we have to protect our own cultural heritage here in this country and around the world in the contemporary uh, scene. So I'm looking very forward, uh, looking forward very much to welcoming our three speakers, uh, Katrina Crow, um, Zoe Reed, and Laura Joy. I'll introduce each of them as we uh, uh, ask them to speak to us. The format will be three 15-minute uh, papers. Uh, we'll try and keep as tightly to time as we can, and that should leave plenty of room, I hope, for a lively discussion questions uh, for the panel's uh, speakers uh, afterwards. When it comes to that, uh, I'll uh, try and be very strict with you and ask for short questions or very short comments, and I'll probably group the questions together so that we get as many people as possible from the audience uh, involved in the discussion. Um, but without further ado, let me move to the first speaker from this evening, who is uh, known to all of you, I'm sure, uh, Katrina Crow 
uh, is former head of special projects at the National Archives of Ireland and probably best known to you as the person who brought you the uh, Irish Census uh, project, the Census Online project, so took the 1901-1911 census and made them available free at the point of access, extraordinary achievement. Uh, and then also has done such extraordinary work in advocating for and explaining, contextualizing the meaning and power of our archives in our contemporary society. So to address us first, uh, please welcome Katrina Crow. Thank you, Peter, for that lovely introduction. I don't think I've ever seen a crowd like this for an archives event. What is happening? It is remarkable. Thank you all so much for being here. Um, we have spent many years, and you'll hear uh, some of the reasons why, in the exterior darkness, hoping that some light would shine in and that people would come and listen to us. And here you all are, so what, what a wonderful sight it is to see you. In two and a half years' time, we're going to meet the 100th anniversary of the destruction of the Four Courts by explosion and fire, an event which destroyed almost all of the contents of the Public Record Office, which was situated in the Four Courts complex since 1867 and packed with eight centuries' worth of administrative, legal, and ecclesiastical documents dealing with the often turbulent history of this island. It was one of the greatest cultural calamities ever to befall any country, and we did it to ourselves. Now, let me see if I can make this work. So that's the explosion itself, seen from down the river. There are many photographs of, of this horrible moment. The biggest explosion ever seen before or since in Dublin. That's the beautiful public record office uh, as it was before 1922. The front part of it is the record house where the reading room was situated and the offices and the back part with the beautiful long windows that you can see there is the record treasury. And this is the repository, the record treasury itself, as it was before 1922, uh, with relaxed-looking workers leaning over the, the uh, galleries, having a lovely time for themselves, not foreseeing the calamity that was about to befall them and the records that they were looking after. Having been haunted all of my working life in the Public Record Office, the State Paper Office, and the National Archives by this loss, I'm really grateful to Peter, who I'm grateful to for all sorts of other things too, but particularly for this opportunity to reflect on how it happened, what its consequences were and are, and what can be done to alleviate it. The story of the calamitous fire, as it was described later by James Morrissey, Deputy Keeper of the Public Records, arises directly from the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921, which ended the War of Independence and gave Ireland dominion status within the British Empire. Quote, the freedom to achieve freedom, as Michael Collins put it at the time. The treaty split the Republican movement into two factions, the pro-treaty side led by Michael Collins, which accepted the treaty as the best that could be got at the time, and the anti-treaty side led by Eamon de Valera, which saw the treaty as a betrayal of the Republican state for which they had fought, that betrayal most egregiously exemplified by the oath of allegiance to the king, which would have to be taken by members of the Doyle. After intense and bitter debate in December and January 1921-22, the Doyle voted on the 7th of January 1922 to ratify the treaty by 64 votes to 57. Eamon de Valera resigned as president on the 9th of January and was replaced by Arthur Griffith. The treaty was to be put to the population on the 16th of June, which is, of course, coincidentally Bloomsday, although they didn't know it at the time because... Uh, Ulysses was just finished in 1922, so they hadn't had the opportunity both to vilify it and to read it uh, at that time. <laughs> in the meantime, the new provisional government set about overseeing the withdrawal of British troops from Ireland and taking over the administration of the country. 
Anti-treaty IRA members, some of whom took over barracks around the country with the reluctant approval of the government, found that they would receive no pay for their upkeep, so continued to raid banks and businesses to fill the gap, and perhaps in some cases to enrich themselves. The new National Army, made up partially of pro-treaty IRA members, was just getting on its feet and was not in a position to challenge this behaviour. Talks were held throughout the period to try to heal the split over the treaty, with often optimistic forecasts that such healing could take place and that people who had fought together in the War of Independence would not turn on each other. Alas, this did not transpire. On the 15th of April 1922, an armed force of anti-treaty IRA under the command of Rory O'Connor entered the Four Courts complex on the Dublin Quays and evicted anyone working or living there, including Mr. John J. Tucker, caretaker of the Public Record Office, who was used to this, having been previously evicted during the 1916 Rising. He must have thought, will they ever stop so I can actually sit by my fireside and have a drink in the evening? No. Out you go again, John J. Members of uh, what now became the Four Courts Garrison chose living quarters, office space, and crucially, spaces for the storage and manufacture of munitions in the complex. The Public Record Office was designated ominously the munitions block, where explosives would be made into mines and grenades. I couldn't resist doing this. I know I should stop giving out about Ernie O'Malley, but there's just this wonderful picture. There's Ernie in 40 shades of green. He was director of organization for the anti-treaty IRA and he found a nice berth in a judge's chambers where he arranged prints of Tintoretto and Piero della Francesca on the walls and stored his wonderful literature library which included Baudelaire, Vasari, Montaigne, Shakespeare's sonnets and a collection of John Millington Singh illustrated by Jack B. Yeats. Look behind you, Ernie, there's 800 years of Irish history just across the yard going to be joined by explosives that are not going to do it any good. Next morning, detachments were sent to the Four Courts Hotel and a local bakery and bacon factory. Boys can't survive without rashers. It's a thing you have to remember about all wars. If they can't get their hands on a rasher sandwich, they're not going to thrive. To acquire supplies for the garrison. This practice continued for the two-month-long occupation, the phony war which preceded the outbreak of civil war hostilities in earnest. In the meantime, members of the garrison could come and go as they wished. Ernie O'Malley and Sean McBride would apparently wander up to Grafton Street in the mornings and meet girls in Mitchell's or Robert's coffee shops. Dublin can be heaven with the coffee at 11. <laughs> Barry's Hotel on Great Denmark Street was packed every night with garrison members arguing with their National Army counterparts. The proprietor tells us they never came to blows. Rubbish was collected by Dublin Corporation once a week. There are worse ways to live. It couldn't last, however. The British government was going increasingly unsettled by this clear breach of the terms of the treaty and began to pile on the pressure in June. On the 22nd of June, the IRA killed Sir Henry Wilson. That is him. Until recently, Chief of the Imperial Generous General Staff in London. This was a serious challenge to the British government, who up to then had reluctantly allowed Collins to downplay the occupation in the hope of resolving it without violence. General McCready, overseeing the departure of his troops from Ireland, was told to attack the four courts and get the occupiers out. He thought this a bad idea and he stalled, and he later congratulated himself in his memoirs for his forbearance. Then a number of things happened very quickly, which made an attack inevitable. On the 25th of June, the results of the general election were released with a 51-36 split in favour of the treaty and 40% voting for parties other than the splintered Sinn Féin. In all, only 28% of the electorate voted against the treaty. And that's, those are important figures to remember for our forthcoming uh, interesting excursion into the 100th anniversary of the Civil War. 
On the 26th of June, Winston Churchill made a bombastic and inflammatory speech in the House of Commons, threatening unspecified but terrible action if the four courts were not vacated, and Lloyd George sent a cable to Collins telling that unless action was taken, the treaty would be deemed to have been violated and grave consequences would ensue. On the 27th of June, in retaliation for the arrest of garrison member Leo Henderson for commandeering cars from a motor showroom, J.J. Ginger O'Connell, there he is looking very black-avised, um, a very popular general in the National Army, was abducted on the street and deposited in a basement room in the forecourts. When he was eventually released uh, after the fierce battle for the complex, he said he didn't like the noise and the food wasn't really up to scratch. While many National Army members did not want to attack their former comrades in the forecourts, whom they were meeting for drinks regularly in Barry's Hotel, O'Connell's abduction was a step too far. Collins realized the new state had to defend its legitimacy, and the assault in the forecourts began the next day with the help of some 18-pounder guns borrowed from the British. Three days of battle ensued, with constant bombardment of the poorly defended forecourts from a number of vantage points. By the 30th of June, things were going badly for the garrison, which had been driven out of most of its positions, including the public record office, which had allegedly been cleared of munitions by the National Army. At 12.30 p.m., there was an enormous explosion until recently thought to have been a National Army shell hitting anti-treaty munitions in the public record office. We thought this because Ernie O'Malley told us so in The Singing Flame, his eloquent, if self-serving, memoir of his experiences during the Civil War. Michael Feuer's new book, The Battle for the Four Courts, makes a fairly persuasive case that the explosion occurred in the so-called headquarters block very near the public record office, where the explosives to be used in the manufacture of mines and grenades were stored. The explosion blew lots of documents into the sky, but according to him, they were to do with probate, divorce, and land matters, and were not the records of the PRO. However, the fire which had been burning already in HQ block was immensely exacerbated by the explosion, and it spread all over the place, including across the yard to the PRO which had been damaged severely by the explosion. So even if this is the case, that it was munitions in the headquarters block that, that caused the explosion, it's 17 yards away from the public record office, so it's not particularly an excuse for not doing anything about this over the three months that the anti-treaty garrison were there. The fire brigade asked for a ceasefire in order to try to tackle the fire, but they were told by Paddy O'Daly, the officer commanding the National Army attackers, that Ireland is more important than a fire in the forecourts. So it burned for several days, and many more explosions took place, triggered by mines, petrol, and paraffin, deposited around the complex by the anti-treaty forces before their surrender on the 30th of June. One thing is clear from this sorry tale. Nobody gave a damn about the records in the public record office. There were at least three approaches to the garrison by the Royal Society of Antiquaries, by Constantine Kern, and by Seamus O'Callaghan to implore the occupiers to safeguard the precious archives in their custody. Acknowledgements were issued, but nothing done. Uh, a historian said to me a couple of years ago, Katrina, would you stop going on about poor Ernie O'Malley and giving out about him? You know, when things get going, lads do things. So I asked if I could quote him, and he said, oh no. I thought, wow. But yeah, when things get going, lads can do things, and I am more tolerant now that I'm older. But when lads have three months to consider what they might do, when they've been approached three times by people who are willing to help them to possibly evacuate these precious records, I'm afraid a certain amount of culpability has to be assigned. So what was lost in this calamitous fire? Among the most mourned records were the census records of 1821, 1831, 1841, and 1851, an entire demographic record of pre-famine Ireland. 
Anyone who has visited the poignant deserted village on Ackle Island, where you can walk the pathways of a once teeming human settlement depopulated by the Great Famine, can lament the loss of the names and family structures of those who live there. The silence which fills the place is deepened by the tragic lack of once existing rich information about its inhabitants. The millions in Ireland and abroad who have used and enjoyed the 1901 and 1911 census online would be very glad to have these records, particularly the very large number whose ancestors left the country before and during the famine. Heartbreakingly, but usefully, we have an almost complete account of what was in the public record office before its destruction. Herbert Wood, assistant deputy keeper of the record office, published his guide to the records deposited in the Public Record Office of Ireland in 1919. So we can see that the Public Record Office, established in 1867, after numerous attempts to create a repository for Irish official records, contained three years before its destruction. Ecclesiastical records like the Christchurch deeds dating back to 1174, court records dating back to the 13th century, which gave details of criminal and civil cases, as well as the financial and legislative affairs of the country, military records giving details of local yeomanry from the 18th century, transportation records of the same period often containing petitions from prisoners pleading for clemency, masses of records dealing with the huge land transfers of the 17th century, Church of Ireland parish records dating back to the 17th century, and many wills dating back to the 16th century, and they are just samples. So it's an incalculable loss. How many potential MAs, PhDs, articles and books went up in smoke that day along with the records? How many Irish citizens and people of Irish descent abroad were denied access to crucial information about their ancestors? And what damage was done to the burgeoning project of writing Irish history based on evidential primary sources? We'll never know. But we should not forget that we began our existence as an independent state with the abolition of a priceless national cultural resource, and we did it to ourselves. Winston Churchill wrote to Michael Collins on hearing the destruction, quote, the archives of the four courts may be scattered, but the title deeds of Ireland are safe. End quote. It would be very nice to have both. But the story is not totally depressing. You'll be glad to hear. As Peter said, there's, there's an element of therapy about what we're doing here. Uh, we ourselves in the record office had to have an exhibition called The Calamitous Fire in order to be able to move on, as they say, from the horror overhanging us. Uh, and we have to remind ourselves that it is not as bad as it might have appeared uh, at the time. Many records escaped destruction, some like those of the Chief Secretary's office because they had not been transferred from the State Paper Office to the Public Record Office in time to be burned due to bureaucratic inertia, which is not always such a bad thing. The, the clerks, you know, the clerks of the State Paper Office came in at 11 and went home at 4 and spent a lot of time reading the newspapers and they didn't really have time to be transferring the rebellion papers across the river. So deo gratias for bureaucratic laziness because sometimes... Uh, doing nothing is better than doing something. Uh, these records, which date from 1796 to 1922, formed the most important archive relating to 19th century Ireland anywhere in the world. The 1901 and 1911 census records survived in the Registrar General's office. The records of the Quit Rent Office, dealing with land revenues due to the Crown, the Valuation Office, the Office of Public Works, dealing with the public infrastructure of the country, and the Commissioners of National Education, dealing with the administration of the primary education system from 1831 on, all survived and in due course were transferred to the newly rebuilt Public Record Office. And the rebuilding itself was a kind of a miracle. A newly independent state in the aftermath of a vicious civil war with very little money still believed it necessary to restore its national archives. 
There was no question of abandoning this project, despite the terrible destruction wrought by explosion and fire. When you read the words of S. Lee Ratcliffe, a member of staff, in the immediate aftermath of the explosion, you can see the enormity of the task, and I quote, what remains of the building is a mere ruinous shell. That gives you an idea of what it looked like directly afterwards. The roof, which was partly glass and partly slates, has fallen in. The coping of the whole of the east side has fallen, and there is a fissure several feet wide extending from the top to the ground floor level. The floor of the repository is piled 10 to 20 feet high with twisted ironwork and debris, and entry is impossible. In the vaults were deed boxes on iron racks. The racks were evidently softened by the great heat, and the weight of the boxes has bent them and drawn them forward. The lids of the boxes have fallen in. The contents have been reduced, in every case, to a little white ash." End quote. Despite this daunting task, the public record office was open for business again by 1928, and Herculean records are made by the staff to find replacements for records which had been destroyed. But the state, having admirably restored the building, proceeded to neglect the institution, succumbing to the false belief that everything had been destroyed in the fire. When I started work in the public record office in the mid-1970s, it was a place which had suffered official neglect for decades. My arrival with four other young archivists was the first proper increase in staff granted to the PRO since 1922, and the staff complement was still well below that which obtained uh, before 1922. It became clear to us new archivists that a miasma hung over the place and that its source was the destruction of 1922. It was rarely talked about. Over the decades, a belief had grown up that mentioning it could only cause damage to the PRO's reputation, reinforcing the idea that we had nothing worth talking about and therefore should not be resourced. This was not at all true, but it was internalized to a large degree by the staff. One of my colleagues assuaged his archival anxieties by coming up with a Baroque formula letter to go out to correspondence, which read, Dear Sarah, Madam, I deeply regret to have to inform you that the item you seek tragically perished in the terrible conflagration of 1922. We all enthusiastically adopted this formula. It provided information both accurate and suitably elegiac and gave us a Chekhovian sense of regret for irreversible tragedy, just what you need in your early 20s. However, the important battle to create and implement new and appropriate legislation for Irish archives also continued apace, uh, culminating in the National Archives Act of 1986, which guaranteed the preservation of government records and their accessibility to the public 30 years after the creation. This is landmark legislation which defines the National Archives' responsibilities and rights, and which has led to huge transfers of records over the last 30 years and a consequent flowering of 20th century Irish history. We owe a great debt to our predecessors who undertook to rebuild a national culture institution from the ashes and fought to restore popular understanding of the importance of evidential history and the processes required to ensure its survival. Alas, even after these changes, which created a modern national archives, official neglect continued and has sadly got worse in the last few decades. A report commissioned by the Archivist Trade Union, FORSA, which compared staffing levels in the Irish archives to those in Scotland, Denmark, and Northern Ireland, reveals that we are sadly lagging behind our fellow organizations. Space shortage is so critical that the records of many government departments cannot be taken in for the annual 30-year release. A new 20-year release rule lies unimplemented on the statute book because of lack of staff to deal with it. We're facing a holocaust of electronic records created since the late 1970s, many of which are no longer retrievable. The seriousness of that black hole has been made clear to government for at least 10 years to no response. Many organizations, such as the National Treasury Management Agency, NAMA, and TUSLA, are not covered by the National Archives Act, having been established since it was passed. Health records and those of semi-state bodies are not covered either. 
Historians and other interested parties may look back in 50 years' time to blame this generation for emulating the Four Courts garrison in our indifference to the ongoing loss of centrally important official records and the consequent black hole in our history. Although they're looking at the crowd here tonight. I begin to doubt that. I begin to think maybe there might be a movement. We will, I hope, be having an event uh, here within uh, a month or two to talk about the, the staffing crisis and the other issues around access to archives. And I hope you will all come to that too. We'll be delighted to see you. But there is one bright spark of hope, although perhaps I shouldn't use incendiary metaphors given my subject matter. <laughs> Beyond 2022, that photograph of the website of this is much more beautiful when you look at it on the site. A project under the inspirational guidance of our host tonight, Peter Crooks, with many national and international partners, ambitiously proposes to digitally reconstruct as much as possible as what was in the PRO repository before 1922. And I leave you with that nice shot of our lovely repository. Through the use of copies, other surrogates, and records sent out of the country over the centuries. We should wish this wonderful project the very best of luck and hope that its existence will persuade the authorities to look again at the needs of one of our most valuable institutions. We don't want to contemplate a situation after we're all dead when another Peter Crooks has to create another project called Beyond 2122 to try to replace what we lost when we had far more money than in the 1920s. As Bob Dylan sang, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. Thanks for your attention. Well, thank you very much, Katrina. And, um, Thank you for making me blush towards the end with those generous remarks. But Beyond 2022 exists um, only through uh, the collaboration that we've formed with the various archival partners and participating institutions. There are five archival partners. I may as well mention it now. The National Archives of Ireland, the National Archives of the United Kingdom, the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, all of them interconnected in terms of their history, the Irish Manuscripts Commission, and Trinity College. Dublin, and then a group of, uh, at, at this point, 30 participating institutions. So it's a very exciting collaboration, and it's nice to be able to celebrate that. And uh, it's uh, also just a note, I never heard anybody speak about 1922 and raise quite so many laughs in uh, 15 minutes. So that in itself is a remarkable achievement. Of those collaborators, the one to whom I'm particularly personally grateful is our next speaker, Zoe Reid. Anybody who is on Twitter will have been captivated for the last number of years by the uh, beautiful photography that has been emanating from the conservation studio in Bishop Street, uh, as Zoe and her colleagues have begun the work of unpacking the uh, very sobering remains of what came out of that fire. I had the privilege uh, on the 12th of January this year of going to the conservation lab, not for the first time, so he's very indulgent and has me visit frequently, but on that occasion she took out, I'm a medieval historian, every scrap of medieval parchment to survive the fire, which was both extraordinary uh, uh, and sobering because they filled just a few desks in the conservation lab, and yet they have remained unexplored, much remains to be discovered through them, and they extend far beyond the Middle Ages, and they will be made accessible to us collectively again through the miraculous conservation work that she uh, 
has been doing and that we hope will continue through uh, our increased support. So please welcome uh, Zoe Reid, Senior Conservator at the National Archives of Ireland to discuss Picked Up and Saved, assessing the damage caused by the fire nearly 100 years on. Zoe. Hello everybody. Um, conservators aren't used to such a big crowd, so thank you very much for coming out in this cold um, January evening. Um, Katrina eloquently gave me my opening line, so thank you. I've been sitting there puzzling, how do I launch into this? Um, Katrina said nobody cared in 1922 about the collection, um, and I beg to differ very slightly. Now, this is where I go. Oops, where am I going to go? Nope, I went wrong. Oh, I did it wrong. Which one? Sorry. <laughs> you can fix it. Yeah. So which, what do I, that way. Perfect. Okay, and we'll start there. And now I know what I'm doing. Okay. So, as Katrina already mentioned, Herbert Woods was the deputy keeper of the PRO at the time. And this is a quote um, from him. And I won't bother reading it all. Um, I think the picture says a thousand words, um, and I suppose from a conservator's point of view, what I find interesting and exciting is the last sentence where he says, the only remains of the treasury contents were some rolls, their membranes glued together by heat. And I'm in the very lucky position of now nearly 100 years on looking at those rolls and seeing how we perhaps get them unglued, to use an, not a very technical term. So I want to look just very briefly as we start um, on collection recovery because what happened in the immediate aftermath of June um, 1922 was in my sense quite extraordinary but very understandable. If you can imagine back to perhaps being a member of staff of the public record office, what it might have felt like to have the place that you worked in, the place where you knew so well, to have it end up looking like this. Um, and unfortunately there is, there's very little documentary evidence that tells us or describes the work that the staff did um, and slowly I'm beginning to piece it all together by looking through historic office files and reading various as much as I can about it but I'm not a historian and I'll say that from the start but I think one thing that we can take um, very strongly is that the, that the staff themselves had a great sense of care and took time over them going into the rubble and um, trying to find whatever they could to salvage it. And this is a good example. I'm loving the fact that the screen's so big. <laughs> I sat there in awe when Katrina talked. Um, and this is an example. Um, this is what we call our crispy pompadons. Um, Katrina said in their day they called them cabbages. And we reckon that's because there weren't too many Indian restaurants in Dublin at the time. Um, and that's what a vellum roll or charter perhaps might look like. And that's the sort of stuff they were finding in the rubble, and that's what they were salvaging. Not sure what their thought process was at the time. Did they think somebody like me 95 years later would be able to come along and look at it and go, okay, that's not so bad. Um, I'm not sure, but that's what they were picking up. And how did they get in there and get to do that work? Well, pretty swiftly, um, there was a lot of support from them. So a letter came from the Minister of Finance at the time by early July, and that Minister of Finance for the first provisional government was, of course, Michael Collins. Um, and he said, this responsibility falls to the Board of Works, the Office of Public Works, and that they should appoint um, a salvage officer 
and this is him. And you cannot imagine my excitement when I find this photograph. This is Chandler Smith. Uh, he was an OPW engineer, um, and he was based in the Customs House. And he actually was there and involved in, again, salvage operation of the Customs House fire in 1921. So he seemed to be the perfect gentleman. And he was put in, an, uh, in charge of the complete forecourt site, so not just the PROI. Um, and this gives you, again, the timeline sense of by the 13th of July, he was appointed. By the 17th of July, he'd gone into that picture of rubble and sort of said, OK, yes, I think perhaps clearing out the debris, we can start to try and see we can let staff in. It might be safe for them to go in. Um, it's hugely exciting. The, the documentation that we have in the office is quite scarce, but there, is, there are documents there that are beginning to piece together that story. Um, but yes, I love it. I'm just so, I'm so happy with that picture. And so how long did it take? And this is another treasure find. Um, and again, you'll be able to see this and read it quite clearly. Um, this is a letter written by uh, James Marcy, who, as Katrina said, became the deputy keeper whenever the PRO was reopened in 1928. And this quote comes from the deputy keeper's 55th um, report. And these are just gold mines full of information. I know I read them in a very different way to historians because the nugget of excitement for me in this was where he's actually sort of saying they were appointed rooms where they took the salvaged material and they sorted it in a room in the record, in the record um, office in Dublin Castle. And to me, that suddenly made a whole lot of sense because when we came to look at the parcels, I'd be like, how, how are they so neat? How are they labelled so well? How did they identify them? But they took the time, they took the care, they took the stuff out, and they gave themselves the space and the time to work together and figure out what things were. And for that, we are hugely grateful to them. You can also see in point three of this letter he was writing into the office at the time, um, that actually it was nearly 12 months' work. It's the 8th of June, 1923, is the date that he gives um, for the end of the salvage work. And this is a lovely example of a parcel and label. You'd be surprised what conservators find exciting. Um, but this is, this is some of them. Um, so this is what they did. This is what I mean. They took the time. They were able to, even at that stage, try and identify where these items had been within the shelving. And again, they were able to do that using Herbert Wood's um, guide. As well as that, and it's always apocryphal because it is, again, documented in um, the 55th Dep Deputy Keeper's report, there is this quote from James Morrissey um, about documents being picked up on the Hill of Hoth. And an appeal was made to people um, in possession of such documents to restore them to official custody. Now, this is a, a close-up example of some of the stuff that sits within that little subsection of salvage material that was handed in. It isn't an awful lot. Um, the call-out went into the Irish Times on the 28th of July, and that was after the support was given um, from the Royal Society of Ant Antiquaries. Um, their offices were in 63 Marion Square. They still are there. Um, and Herbert Woods would later go on to say the results of the appeal was disappointing. And this is an example of something that did come in. Now, frustratingly for me, and perhaps maybe for the historians as well, is what the office at the time did in that very clerical way is that they separated out the letters from the documents. And there's very little tangible evidence between the letter that came in saying, we found this scrap in amongst the rubble to the letter that it came in with. But perhaps that's another PhD or historical research that can be done in the future. But this is an example of something that really gives you a sense of just being picked up. You can see where it's burnt. You can see how one part of it survived. And then the rest just has obviously just gone to cinders. So this brings me back neatly to 
the very neat salved parcels. I mean, this is what they look like. How exciting is this? Um, and this is them with their identification um, and their labels. Um, and so what we came to was approximately, well, it's not approximately, at the time in 2017, it was 378 brown paper parcels. Um, we started off with a smaller number of that, but it actually it was a little bit like um, Christmas. You'd open up a parcel and then there'd be more parcels on the inside. So we got to 378. But prior to, just to lead up to what happened in 2017, um, I'd always been, since I'd come into the National Archives in 2002, been really aware of this collection as such, or this group of, um, of parcels. They were in the forecourts and then we were doing refurbishment work there and then they got brought over to Bishop Street. Um, myself and the other archivists, it was always known that one day, yes, we'd love to be able to do something with this. It needed to be done. It was essential. It was a key project. But I suppose it took to us getting into the decade of centenaries um, to really get momentum behind that. And so in scoping out the project, this is very basically what we wanted to do. We wanted to open up the parcels, find out how much material was there, determine its um, condition. And now I'm getting to a good old conservation speak. To, um, devise parameters, housed archival standards, prepare the material for identification. Now that was one for me that came a little bit later because we always thought this was a subset and it was quite a while into the project when suddenly the penny dropped for me as a conservator. It was like, oh yeah, this stuff already was listed. You know, so we don't have to list it as a new collection as such. We just need to find out where it was from Herbert Wood's guide in 1919. So that's what we mean for identification. And then determining the historical significance. And again, that's not up to me as a conservator. That's where I need the historians and the archivists to come in, in board. And that's very thankfully what the Irish Manuscripts Commission did. Um, they approached the National Archives, willing to give some support, and said, have your project. And I went, yes. And I went to the director, and I went, yes. So we, I think everybody agreed, without a doubt, that this was a key project. So. Because in some sense, it was unknown what it would be like. The best way for a conservator to think about things is to break them down into sizable, doable, small jobs. So the first one was, let's do the survey. Let's be really strict with ourselves and just do a survey in a limited amount of time, get through it and see what we can find. And so that's the, the parameters and that's what we did in 2017. Again, it was successful. And this is what we found. We graded the material um, between one and five. We like numbers as conservators. It helps us define things. Um, and we assessed them in terms of how easy it was to open them up and read them, look at them, actually get at the information. Um, and to give you an idea of it might have only been 378 parcels. Once you open them up, what's inside is bundles of documents in most cases, or large rolls of vellum um, documents held together, or else it could be a single sheet. So it's that variation. So that gives you an idea of the scale of what we're dealing with in terms of numbers. 16,000 sheets of vellum in various different formats and about over 9,000 sheets of paper. Just a bit. So to give you a quick, now I'm going to rattle through this because I don't want to bore people too much and um, I know we're tight on time. So this is a good example of one. It's nice and flexible. It's vellum. It's from 1668, but it still can be opened and manipulated and looked at and, and um, information can come from it. Grade twos, a little bit more damage. They're going to need a little bit more tender love and care from a conservator's point of view. You're going to see more sort of damage of um, burning and singeing but then they could be in a bundle where the rest of the bundle is actually quite okay. But dry and brittle, the fire definitely drew out the moisture from the paper, so the paper's very dry and brittle. 
Grade threes, we're getting into things that are a little bit more scrunchy and more difficult to identify. And of course, this is one of the ones where there's a higher proportion of material like this. And this, again, is an example of that's an old state paper office box. Um, and that's how perhaps this was the stuff they couldn't identify so clearly. So this is how they popped them in the box to keep them safe. Grade fours, we're definitely getting into things that are a lot more scrunchy. Not so much paper, definitely a lot more vellum. Um, and that seems obvious to say that um, the vellum survived uh, the heat of the fire rather than the paper. Um, and you can begin to see the example of how it is. Vellum, whenever it's uh, in a fire or affected by heat, it actually, because it's skin, it contracts, it becomes smaller. And you can see that. And just in the very top um, image there, you can see teeny tiny writing. They didn't write in teeny tiny hand. That's because the vellum has shrunk. Okay, um, and that's the top sheet. And then what you have under that will be multiple layers, as you see below, multiple layers of vellum um, um, pieces. And then we have the fives. And so we have, if I use the pointer, so the, oh, no, go back. Five, so the very top one again is vellum. Then the, the bottom two are both paper documents. Um, and the bottom one that basically looks like the center of your fire um, is their charred wills. We have three boxes of those. And you kind of open them initially and go, oh, okay, not much we can do there. But the guys in 1922-23 had the foresight and said, well, let's, let's keep them, because maybe someday there might be. Maybe someday there might be. I might still be thinking, not quite sure what we could do, but maybe someday there might be something we can do. So what we always like to do for the, is conservators like to clean. We do a lot of cleaning, and so that's what we started with, with the grade ones. And so the next few slides are just a little bit about some of the conservation work that we have been doing. Um, it's very labor intensive, but the results can be excellent. And so we did start with surface cleaning. Um, and the second phase of funding that we got from the IMC gave us the facility to do, again do a concentrated project of surface cleaning, everything that was a grade one. So those 28 items, that worked out at about nearly 4,000 various sheets of either vellum or paper. And just to give you an example, some of the vellum that did survive that's in reasonable condition in the grade ones were these little vellum receipts. Um, they're long and narrow. Um, and basically, you can see what happens in the picture. Um, one side has crisped up and contracted because of the heat of the fire, and the other side is in relatively good condition. So what I've been able to do with these is do some conservation techniques whereby I've introduced humidification, some moisture into the vellum very slowly um, using ultrasonic uh, humidity. And then because the skin becomes supple, so it means you can start to move it and manipulate it, then what I've done is I'm using a technique using magnets to hold it in place while it, the, the strips of vellum dry. And the results are excellent. So you go from that distortion where you can't read the end of the, of the receipt to something that looks like this. So, um, and the, the theory in my head of doing the grade ones first was not so much practice, but to develop the correct techniques, to develop a very strong understanding of this material, because it's quite unique to have to work through something that's been through a fire. Um, and there's, it's not an opportunity you get all the time in conservation. So by doing the grade ones in this way, I felt this was really important. Katrina also very nicely gave a shout out to Yeomanry Returns. Um, these are some that we found from 1798. These are from Barks and County Carlow. Little bundle of them. Look really insignificant. And then you open them up and they're large. 
And they're amazing documents because, um, well, from a conservator's point of view, they're amazing because the paper is gorgeous. It's handmade. They're printed and they have manuscript text on them as well. They've got, they're written with iron gall ink. But you can see the damage in that lower image in the center. And that's due to where the documents were folded and the scorch marks coming in from the side of the folds. So again, um, developing conservation techniques, again, due to the combination of the material, the paper, and the inks. Again, I used ultrasonic humidification. And again, that helped relax the paper, brought some humidity back into it, meant I could get it flat, reduce those creases, which means it's easier for people to handle the documents, digitize them, and read them. Um, and then I got into working out what repair tissues to use. And there's a variety of things conservators can use as repair tissues. And in the end, I used this very gorgeous one that is a beautiful tone and just works really well um, with, the, with the documents. Um, I was, the picture at the side with all the little funny labels is where I've used different types of tissues and I'm trying to figure out which one works best and what looks the best. So making progress, where do we get to? So, this is where we're at at the minute. The grade ones are done. They're ready to be identified and slotted back into the rightful place where they should have been um, in, in Woods Guides. And that's what we're hoping will happen um, within the next year. But from a conservation point of view, we're looking at what we can do next. And so we're scaling it up. What we want to do is the grade twos, um, primarily looking at the paper documents, get those cleaned um, uh, using the same techniques we've used that have been successful, and then progress on to conservation. Um, and they do some of the documents do present more challenges than others. Something like this. Um, this is one of the early medieval ones that Peter was just, uh, mentioning. Um, and I think what's exciting about these is once, the more I see of them, the more I learn about them, the more I understand them. Um, and that, that, the possibilities are quite, quite exciting, but the possibilities become exciting because we have the opportunity to collaborate and work with other areas of expertise, such as the scientists. And what we're hoping to do um, is, one, be able to identify perhaps the skin type of um, vellum, that the, the skin that the, that the vellum would have been taken from by using DNA analysis, and then a thing called X-ray tomography, um, which is to take cross-sections of the rolls. Now, this has become a bit of a a challenge for me in trying to, well, maybe I'll go back to this one <laughs> just for a minute. This has become a bit of a challenge because the X-ray tomography means there are super clever scientists who, if we can X-ray part of a role, will be able to do a computer algorithm and basically unwrap that, um, that X-ray and make it flat. It's very much, if anybody's read anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the work that they're doing in the States with that, um, there's a, a gentleman at the University of Kentucky who's doing a lot of work on that. Um, there are also some, there's um, progressive work happening in the University of Cardiff um, and Queen Mary's University in London. Now, the only thing is that the, um, for the guys in, in England and Wales that are hoping to collaborate with us on this, one of their um, criteria is that my scrunchy bit of, of vellum that I want to have x-rayed has to be able to fit inside a Pringles can because that's the size of their x-ray aperture. So, um, and we've been corresponding, and I've been like, no, I've not found anything yet. But I have to say, the day Peter came in, I think I have my eureka moment. I think I found a couple of things. So I'm very excited about that and where that's going to take us and what we're going to learn from that. So progressing the conservation. Um, as I said, it's x-ray tomography, but it's also looking at other things like multispectral imaging. And that's to help um, 
revive the text or help read the text better. So that's looking at the documents in different wavelengths, um, uh, light wavelengths, to be able to enhance the, the textual writing. And again, I think I'm identifying documents where I think that would be really useful and exciting to do. Um, and then the other um, techniques as well for looking at the writing materials as well, which is FTIR spectrometry. Um, as I say, we're looking into an exciting time. This is one of the largest roles that we have. Um, and I think, again, a moment for me of um, where the light bulb kind of went off was realizing that whilst the old documents and the scraps and the fragments are incredibly exciting to work on, um, the amount of information that could be retrieved, the amount of data and historical information of importance to other people that could be retrieved if we could conserve something like this, if we could try and unroll this and unwrap this, would be absolutely astounding. And so I think a lot of what I've been doing in the last couple of years, one of the key things that I've learned to do is actually look outside the conservation room. Um, it's to talk to other people and to realize that whilst I have my own unique area of specialization, um, there's a network of people that I can pull on um, and that's what I find actually very exciting about this process because from a conservation point of view I could identify perhaps the most challenging in terms of conservation but it's really interesting to hear from the historian's point of view what could be gained and what, what benefits there could be if we focus on one area and I think we have to be smart unfortunately resources are limited um, and I think I have to look and say will I be able to conserve of those well, what did I say, are you 16,000 vellum and 9,000 paper? Will I be able to conserve every single bit of it? I don't think so, but I think we can be really smart about what we do conserve. And finally, just to acknowledge and thank everybody who's been involved um, from the conservation point of view so far. Um, and uh, yep, those are my thanks. Thank you. <laughs> So we, um, thank you very much indeed. The images were so captivating, but it's going to be incredibly exciting to watch that unfold even more. As Zoe says, this is a project that needs more resources, and that's a message we should all take away from uh, this evening. The uh, state is investing in the Beyond 2022 framework. It's a great privilege that there's two and a half million going into that reconstructive project within phase two, building on Irish Research Council funding in phase one, but this is a really significant national uh, enterprise and it will need expanding uh, resources and uh, a further funding drive to do everything that's possible over a longer period of time. I don't know if you've noticed how beautifully integrated the talks have been so far. Katrina set up the Yeomanry Returns and uh, for Zoe, and Zoe referred to the Dublin Port Receipts. Uh, well, our, our next uh, speaker is the Port Heritage Director from Dublin Port uh, Company, Lord Joy, uh, but also known to uh, you uh, from his previous incarnation uh, at the National Museum of Ireland, where he had a very distinguished career and very high profile uh, uh, directing, curating some of the uh, most significant uh, and popular exhibitions of recent years, including the Soldiers and Chiefs exhibition and many uh, exhibitions connected with the decade of centenaries. Uh, so it's a great pleasure to have Lar tonight, but particularly because he is currently the chair of the uh, Irish National Committee for the Blue Shield. Uh, Zoe is also a member of that organization. 
probably an organization not familiar to you yet, but very important internationally in terms of uh, defining uh, the uh, uh, cultural heritage uh, uh, priorities, how we need to protect uh, and what's required from a national level in, in order to make sure we are in readiness should there be another 1922. What would we do about it? So please uh, welcome our third speaker of the evening, Laura Joy. Peter, thank you very much for that introduction. I'm now going to fumble with the... Uh Ah, yes, it works. Um, what I want to talk about is how heritage professionals have responded to uh, the types of disasters that Katrina has talked about and then Zoe has talked about from a recovery point of view. Um, and what I want to look at is the organization Blue Shield, which is a non-governmental organization which was established in the 1990s, very much in response to uh, the wars in Bosnia um, and the outcome of that. And then to look at the Irish Committee of Blue Shield and more importantly then the how do we respond to war uh, in organizations? And an essential piece of legislation was recently passed into Irish law called the uh, Hay Convention from 1954, which gives protections to cultural organizations and collections and more importantly, buildings. And then a very, very short uh, conclusion. So we look at uh, natural disasters. We've had a series of these over the last 20 years. And each one of these has impacted on cultural organizations in quite dramatic ways. The Danube flooding in 2013 did serious damage to a lot of museums in Czechoslovakia and Germany, um, as did Nepal and the Ecuador earthquake in 2016. Fires, we've had fires in Ireland, two relevant ones there, of course, are the Trinity College fire from 1984 and the Longfield Cathedral fire, which saw the complete destruction of that cathedral, which recently was rebuilt and reopened. But there have been a series of fires, um, and of course dramatically in the last two years, where complete collections in Brazil and a complete building was lost in Paris. So disasters do occur, and, and sadly they are becoming more frequently, in particularly in relation to war. And as I mentioned, Blue Shield was established in the 1990s with the disaster that was occurring in Bosnia, and there was a response to that. But since then, regrettably, wars have become more prevalent, uh, in particular with the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and we've started to see uh, collections, uh, cultural institutions, buildings very much becoming targets uh, as a way of destroying other people's culture and the things that are close to them, uh, in particular in Mali and in Syria and Iraq in the last uh, five years. But when we look at what is Blue Shield, uh, it's the cultural equivalent of the Red Cross. Uh, and like uh, Red Cross, Blue Shield is an international organization supported by national committees. However, there are three minor but important differences I have to point out. The Red Cross has been around for 150 years to establish a worldwide reputation, while Blue Shield, as Peter mentioned, is almost unknown. The Red Cross has a multi-million euro budget, while Blue Shield has no income at all and has very much uh, required uh, volunteer uh, contributions. And again, like Red Cross, the Blue Shield uh, doesn't have paid staff, while, of course, the Red Cross is quite a big and large uh, organization. But Red Cro uh, Blue Shield is very much the Red Cross uh, for culture, and uh, it, since its beginnings in 1996, has started to begin to play a bigger and more important role. It's an NGO dedicated to the protection of heritage from conflict and disasters, has an international board, um, and then uh, has adopted this symbol here that you see in the left-hand corner. Um, and this is the symbol that we associate with the 1954 Hague Convention. Um, and it's a symbol that's very common in, in Europe, but less so uh, in Britain and Ireland. And it's on a lot of buildings that you come across in Austria, uh, signifying buildings that have to be protected uh, and exempt uh, involvement in war. 
So is Blue Shield uh, or historic objects as important to, to protect as people? Of course they're not. Uh, but the protection of heritage is an essential part of protecting individuals and communities. Our material culture is very, very important to us, be it in archives, libraries, and museums, or the buildings uh, that we have built over the last thousands of years. When it was created in 1996, there were four governmental organizations that came together to establish Blue Shield. The International Council of Archives, ICOM, the International uh, Council of Museums, ICOMOS, the International Council of Museums and Sites, and IFLA, the International Federation of Library uh, Organizations and Associations. So they came together to create Blue Shield in response to the events of the wars in Yugos, former Yugoslavia, in particular uh, in Bosnia. There are now 25 registered committees. There are four under construction and five considering construction. Uh, so it is becoming, as I said, a bigger and larger organization. The mission statement uh, states that Blue Shield is committed to the protection of the world's cultural property and is concerned with the protection of cultural and natural heritage, tangible and intangible, the physical and non-physical elements, in the event of armed conflict, natural or human-made disasters. And you'll find more on Blue Shield International on their website, thebluesshield.org. But I want to now talk about uh, the Irish National Committee of Blue Shield. For many years, uh, the United Kingdom and Ireland had one committee uh, but after a number of years, it was decided that Ireland would require a separate Irish Blue Shield Committee. And Dr. Michael Ryan, then director of the, National, uh, or the Chester Beatty Library, reconstituted that committee in 2010. Um, and then in September 2012, the committee was recognized by the International Committee as uh, a new committee. And since then, we've worked away over the last eight years on a variety uh, of projects, in particular in getting the Hague Convention uh, uh, passed into Irish law. And here you can see, uh, again, the various organizations that uh, nominate two individuals to join up uh, onto the Blue Shield uh, Committee. Uh, and over the eight, last eight years, we've had a large number of people, and a, a thanks is owed to everyone serving currently on the committee and those who retired from the committee, committee on their volunteer uh, hours that they've contributed to the organization uh, and contributed to the training exercises and other elements that we've done over the last eight years. The core mission of uh, the committee for the last eight years has been the ratification of the Hague Convention, acting as a unifying voice for engaging government and funders to understand and accept their responsibilities for protecting long-term access to cultural heritage, and to develop the plans to enable the committee to contribute to national and international efforts. So we're very keen to carry out a series of volunteer um, programs in education and training uh, to provide uh, a new knowledge to people on how to deal with collections when they have been damaged during war or in the event of a natural disaster. And to help that, we've run a series of courses uh, since 2014. The last one was in 2019 um, with the Irish Defence Forces. We ran a course in November with military archives, uh, training soldiers on how to deal uh, with uh, collections that have been damaged in the event of war when they're on United Nations operations. And again, the image there that you see on the, uh, the right-hand side is the old bridge at Mostar, which is destroyed. It was deliberately targeted during that war uh, in Yugoslavia and had to be rebuilt afterwards. So um, the Hague Convention, and just the importance of the Hague Convention, the Hague Convention is a part of international hum humanitarian law, formerly known as the law of war, which is a, a branch of international law. Um, International humanitarian law seeks to strike a balance between uh, military necessity and the interests of humanity by regulating the conduct of armed conflict, which is, as you can imagine, not the easiest of things. It places limits on the means and methods of warfare in the interests of humanity, and it really starts in 1864 with the first Geneva Convention. 
And the basic rule of international humanitarian law is that only uh, combatants of military targets can be the object of attack. Uh, civilians, prisoners of war, the sick and wounded, uh, and civilian collections and objects are protected. And cultural property is a, civilian, uh, is a civilian object unless used for military purposes, which in various aspects of law is generally prohibited. So the law itself very much recognized the events of the 20th century, World War I and World War II, and the damage and looting of cultural property that occurred in both wars. And it's the first international treaty focused exclusively on protecting cultural property during armed conflict. And so far, there are 133 state parties uh, have signed the convention, and Ireland did so in 2018. And when we look back at World War I, the targeting of libraries in Belgium, Louvain Library in 1914, and you can see a poster, a recruiting poster, encouraging Irishmen to join up and uses the destruction of that library as one of the appeals for Irishmen to join up in 1914 and 1915. Our own wars, which Katrina has talked about, we all have to remember that in Dublin between 1916 and 22, we lost uh, large parts of our city in and around, and you can see the image on the right-hand side, all the area of red that is burnt around the GPO, including the RHA gallery. We had the destruction of the Custom House uh, in 1921, and then, of course, in 1922, we had the destruction of the Forecourt. So Dublin itself sees the impact of war in three large attacks during this period. Interestingly enough, um, the US Army, when it went into uh, Europe in the summer of 1944, um, was very aware uh, of the risk to culture and also um, the theft of objects by their own soldiers. So Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, the commander of the Allied forces, very strongly issued warnings to soldiers. It is the responsibility of every commander to protect and respect these symbols whenever possible. And civil affairs staff at higher echelons will advise commanders of the localities of historical monuments of this type. So straight away there was a re understanding um, that uh, an army invading a country had to protect uh, the heritage elements that are in there. And you can see on the left-hand side a poster that, again, was issued to soldiers to remind them of their the legal responsibilities. And again, this has become quite well known through the book Monuments Men, and more recently through the film that came out a couple of years ago. So the Hague Convention has been added onto, it's been uh, with extra protocols, uh, and has made it stronger, and those have been passed into Irish law. And essentially, the obligations under the Convention, and this kind of relates to the events of 1922, uh, there is a, a need to safeguard and respect cultural property, in time of peace, to make preparations to safeguard cultural property against foreseeable effects of armed conflict. In many ways, the catalogue that uh, Katrina talks about did that. Not to use cultural property for purposes likely to expose it to destruction or damage during armed uh, conflict. So this, again, is now as part of international law. And then once uh, wars do start, to prohibit them prevent stop to theft and pillage of cultural property, which is something that we've seen very much coming out of Syria and Iraq over the last uh, five years. And importantly, the Convention requires states to make a violation of the Convention a criminal offence in their laws. So these are very strong laws uh, that have now been enacted into Irish law uh, and give us a, a standing to uh, implement those laws in the case of a war, which will never hopefully happen. But more importantly, it's the preparations and the planning that's required under the Hague Convention uh, allows us to prepare for the event of uh, these types of disasters. So looking forward uh, to the committee in 2020, which is now chaired uh, by uh, Zoe. Zoe has taken over uh, responsibilities as chair, and I have retired. Um, I'd like to congratulate her and the rest of the new team 
uh, as they go forward. But they're planning in 2020 to hold a series of events, and I would encourage you to look at the uh, ICOMOS website and also the Twitter and Facebook accounts of Irish Blue Shield to see where they're going to be on. One will be held during Heritage Week. There will be a training event, again, for heritage professionals to train them uh, to deal with uh, disasters and, and, and uh, responses. Um, and again, uh, a real overhaul and setting up of uh, the Blue, Irish Blue Shield uh, Committee's uh, website. So a busy year ahead for them, uh, and I wish them the best of luck. Finally, I'd just like to thank uh, a variety of people who we've met over the last uh, eight years since we were formally established in 2012. In particular, our colleagues, Department of Foreign Affairs um, and the Department of Communications, Climate Action and Environment, who have been very, very helpful and supportive. And the DFA itself was essential, and the team there were essential in having the Hague Convention passed into Irish law. And then, of course, our colleagues in the Department of Culture, Heritage, Gaeltacht, the Irish Defence Forces, the Office of Emergency Planning, uh, the Heritage Council, and uh, the team at the National Museum of Ireland. So without further ado, um, I'd like to say thank you very much. we had two chairs of the Blue Shield with us. Uh, yeah. It's like the two popes. You can ask them both questions now <laughs> on our panel. But I think it's very important, I think, that we are trying to connect our own uh, 20th century experience with the wider uh, 20th century uh, um, very sobering experience of uh, disaster, which is not, has not always been the way we have approached things. And I think this, the, the recent ratification is such an important step. It happened um, uh, so recently and we look forward to seeing that work develop and become mainstream. Now, uh, this is an opportunity to address questions to all three speakers. Um, hopefully your microphones are now turned on. Uh, I'm gonna take questions in groups if I can. Uh, the lights are blinding me slightly, so I'll... Um I was just wondering, Katrina mentioned that the um, four courts had been taken over in 1916 as well, and obviously there wasn't as much significant damage done then. And I'm just wondering when the building was then taken over again, whether the staff, when they were being asked to leave, would have had any idea of the risk to the building and the documents at that stage, or was it only as events unfolded that that became apparent? Yes, the, the 1940 census in the US, which was 130 million records, was uh, transcribed and indexed in about three months using crowdsourcing and uh, you know, the public being involved in the effort. Uh, is, is there any chance that the public could be involved in this project? First question. And the second question is, we lost all of our modern genealogy. I'm, I'm a genealogist, so I'm very interested in the census and so on and so forth. However, we do have a huge resource of ancient genealogies in annals and so on and so forth. Is, is it planned to include those in the digitization and indexing? Uh, 
Okay, uh, the, the poor old forecourts being <laughs> continually invaded. Um, in 1916, nobody expected 1916, including the people in the forecourts. Uh, it, was, it was a completely unexpected event, except for those who were active in it. When the uh, people came in to occupy the reading room and evicted Mr. Tucker, uh, nobody really knew what to do. Um, people went up to work in the state paper office, the staff for, for the week, or went home, because of course it was Easter. Um, and they were back in fairly quickly after the rising was over. So it wasn't a significant event in that sense. It was over fairly quickly. There were very limited amounts of damage done in 1916. Um, but it's, it's also, I imagine, the case in, in April of 1922 that like every conflict or every event that happens, everyone thinks it's going to be over very quickly. Everyone thought World War I was going to be finished by Christmas 1914. Of course, it dragged on for another four years. Um, the people themselves going into the Four Courts thought it would all be over fairly quickly. There were talks taking place to try to deal with the split in Sinn Féin about the treaty, which to, to our eyes now in hindsight look hopeless, but at the time seemed optimistic to some of those who were there. And as I said to you, the, both parties were meeting every night for drinks and discussing their differences about... Uh, what the treaty meant, and having very serious conversations and not coming to blows, staying on reasonably good terms. So uh, the staff, I don't know what they felt. We don't know because they haven't left us information about their, their feelings at the time. Of course, it would have been seen as a really awful disruption. It also would have been seen as a, a much bigger, large-scale disruption than 1916. And signs on it. Uh, McHenry, who was the deputy keeper at the time, made many efforts to get the garrison to understand the importance of the records in the record office, uh, to no avail as it turned out, although to sympathetic hearings, but it didn't work its way through. So I honestly don't think that the staff would have known what lay ahead. They may have had ominous premonitions or thought, but every, everyone's natural instinct is to hope for the best, hope that, that this won't happen, that the unimaginable cannot occur. But as we know, it can, and unfortunately it did in that case. I, I think just to add in, the interesting thing is in terms of when they left the building, what we reckon are the grade one materials, so the material that actually is in the best condition, we actually suspect that was in the record house. So yes. that was in essentially where the reading room was, and that was the material that people had been looking at prior to them, the staff being sort of told out to go. And that's why it's in the best condition. Now we can't confirm that, but that's what we're trying to piece together. The, so the documents themselves are telling us that sort of a history. Interestingly enough, Tucker in 1916 did put in a claim to the Public um, Losses Committee Ireland, which was a funding body that came after 1916, so people could claim compensation for property damage. And he did um, put in a claim, and it's there, available on the National Archives website if you look into the uh, the PLIC records, as they're known. Mm -hmm. um, so we know that much. We do. I mean, we know a fair amount. Uh, it's interesting that, that what remains of medieval history and some early modern history that was in the public record office before 1922 depends on what scholars were looking at that day. Yeah because it was put away in a fireproof strong room in the reading room before the place was vacated. And it's pure random chance that certain things, I think the exchequer role of Edward II survived yep. uh, because somebody was looking at it that day. So that's what Zoe's facing now is attempting to work out what was there and okay. And I think the exchequer role didn't suffer any damage at all. Yes, I think the strong room worked. 
as far as I know. Yeah, yeah. It, it did work. So, yeah. I mean, the, the weird thing is that the, the way the record office was constructed was with a brilliant fireproof door between the record house and the record treasury, in the assumption that if a fire ever started, it would start in the record house, where the reading room was, where the offices were, and that would have stopped the fire from traveling in that direction. And in fact, it worked perfectly, but the other way. While the repository with all the records is being consumed yeah. by flames, the record house escaped because of its fireproof protection, which must be one of the great ironies of an attempt to avert a disaster <laughs> that works in exactly the opposite way. Gina, do you want to say anything about the crowdsourcing? Crowdsourcing? That was the yep, and I, I'm not, I haven't seen the results of what they've done with the, with the, the 1940 census. Uh, crowdsourcing can work. It takes a lot more work than you think, though, mm. because it has to be checked and monitored, and there's a lot of technical work that goes in before you can make the material available for crowdsourcing. But no reason why, why it can't. Um, if all of you are interested in census records, please, please write to the new Taoiseach or the existing Taoiseach back in power again and tell him that you would like him to use his power over the Central Statistics Office to open the 1926 census as soon as possible. We've all been waiting far too long. And we can see what innovative uh, processes we can bring to bear on that. I'll, ju I'll just throw in, we'll need to be properly resourced to yes, tackle it. Yes, exactly. Um, this is a collection that is still closed. Nobody has looked at it, nobody can look at it. Um, the National Archives are simply custodians of it and keeping it very safe. But until that directive comes and until we have the resources to do the work, our hands are very much tied. I love the caution of my former colleague. I can say whatever I like now. <laughs> <laughs> I go into work tomorrow. So you yeah. didn't mention water damage, I don't think. No. And the other cool. question was, um, where in the building or how did what survived survive? Was it falling masonry or? Uh, I think if you, how, where, okay, so water damage, no, you're right. I didn't mention water damage. Um, again, within some of the office files that I'm finding that historically are telling us a bit more about it, they do talk about the weather getting bad. Um, and concern about that. Um, I think an awful lot of it, though, was buried underneath the rubble. Um, and yes, there is, of course, water damage. Um, you'll get that on the documents. And, and sometimes that might have contributed to how they look now, to some of that fusing that we'll see. If we see any signs of mold growth on documents, that's going to have come essentially from water damage. But one thing I would say is that the work they did 95 years ago, in 1922-23, was fantastic because they stabilized them. They did what any archive a conservator would do today or any conservator who's trying to retrieve material from a disaster like that is you, you get it out and you get it somewhere safe and you stabilize it. And I think we all know as conservators that you can't conserve everything immediately, but you put it somewhere where it will be stable in terms of environmental conditions. You protect it from dust, dirt, and light. They did that. They wrapped it in brown paper. Brown paper. It worked perfectly. So within those parcels, I would say there was surprisingly little, if any, degradation from the condition they found it in, in 1922-23, to what it was like whenever we opened up in, in 2017. The, there are, the, the, Zoe's already talked about the stuff in the strong room. That's how some things survived. Mm. Records that were being consulted by scholars on the day. The other significant cohort of records that survived the fire are the chancery pleadings of the late 17th, early 18th century, yeah. 
which I think, and I'm not certain, were in a corner of the repository, which the fire didn't reach, because it's a large collection. It's, a, it's nearly 8,000 documents. Yeah. So about 5,500 of those have been conserved um, to date. And they did suffer damage. In fact, yeah. they were in two tranches. So the listed material was the, the material that actually wasn't as badly damaged, but it was still damaged and affected by the fire, mm -hmm. um, but not to the same extent of some of the uh, images that I was showing you of the very crispy things. But it's kind of miraculous that, that a large cohort mm. survived what was an inferno that burned for several days. So they were a miraculous recovery and they've been available yep. uh, in unconserved state. Now with Zoe's wonderful attention, they are, are properly conserved. But they were looked at by scholars for, for going back 30, 40 years and a fantastic source for that period because so much more is missing. It's wonderful that there are so many gems of hope, but I need more. Um, <laughs> in terms of, of um, maybe collections that exist in the country that we found out about since, maybe that would replace or what would contribute in some way, can you tell us please what is out there or what has been coming in that may, um, you know, may, have, may be able to back up what we have lost? That's for Peter. From That's, Peter. <laughs> That's him. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing I would advert to here is what Katrina referred to, that many of the records um, that are now crown jewels of the National Archives collection happen not to have been accessioned by the time of the fire. And so they, uh, to an extent, either replace or parallel or supplement or uh, fill out the major state collections that were lost, so the Quit Rent Office and the, uh, uh, the Chief Secretary's Office and uh, OPW uh, collections and so on. But beyond 2022 specifically is looking at, and I won't use up time for that today because we can talk about it on other occasions, is at what was lost and where we get the replacement collections for those. And there it's all about power and bureaucracy. It's about the fact that because uh, for many centuries Ireland was being ruled from elsewhere, uh, copies of those documents had to make their way to the uh, central offices, and that's why our collaboration with the National Archives of the United Kingdom is so important. And because bureaucrats make lots of copies of documents, uh, and so uh, the copies make themselves uh, elsewhere. So we'll, we'll, I think one thing I'd like to do next year is to bring our collaborators together and celebrate exactly this point that you're raising is how is it possible to uh, do this type of work. Uh, of reconstruction, and we can give you a fuller answer maybe uh, on that occasion. Okay. We do have time for more questions. Hi, my name's John. I work in what's left of the Four Courts. <laughs> um, Maybe the, the treasury was always destined to burn down because it was across the road from a match factory. Um, I just want to ask the question, uh, Fiora mentions that the archive reading room was actually set for fires. They'd knocked holes through. So to what extent was it inertia um, to actually not save the documents? And to what extent was it his attempt to um, actually burn England's Alexandria Library in Dublin? And then secondly, um, with the digital records um, and technological change, does that actually come under the Blue Shield? Would that be a man-made disaster? Could they actually put pressure on governments to actually retrieve that um, data before it dissipates? Do you want me to ask my question also? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my, name, my name is Simon. I, this is about the Hague Convention and, uh, and Blue Shield. I mean, wars are pretty brutal things and they tend not to be uh, exemplars of rationality and discipline. Has the Hague Convention had any effect? I'm struck by the uh, comments of uh, President Trump about uh, Iran and cultural sites. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think the third one is that we 
Okay. Um, hi, um, I am part of a Irish Research Council laureate project here at Trinity College, uh, Craft Value. Um, and at the moment, we are currently looking at ways to reconstruct lost buildings, lost interiors, uh, some of which were destroyed during the 1921-1922 uh, conflict. So I suppose my first point um, to Lars um, is to really thank you for raising the importance of that issue of what was lost, not just in terms of documents, but of our built heritage, and not just in Dublin, but throughout the country. Um, so yeah, I think something we all need to be aware of. Um, but secondly, um, my point was to Zoe. Uh, I was really interested in uh, what you were saying about using new technology uh, as ways of reconstructing and recreating what's been lost. Um, and I was interested in hearing maybe a little bit more about your collaboration with UK or international partners in that. Thank you. Can we let Laura go first? There were two questions. The, the first one in relation to the Hague Convention, its impact, um, America is probably the best example. Up to 2003, the Americans uh, have been very reluctant to sign the Hague Convention, but after the looting in Iraq, in the national, particularly the National Museum, um, they did sign up, um, and it has had an impact on how the US Army engages uh, with war. Um, and now, uh, when they go, and they, 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 they do seem to go to war a lot, um, they have to take into consideration the Hague Convention because it's a legal requirement to do so. Uh, when President Trump made his announcement a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, I think most US officials kind of responded very, very quickly and actually said, no, there are rules to the game. Um, but in a way, you are right. I mean, once war starts, um, anything can happen. But what the Hague Convention does, it, it kind of sets down rules and there will be repercussions. Um, as we've seen with various kind of um, uh, tribunals and trials in The Hague, you know, it could take 20 years, but the idea with this international law is that accountability will catch up with you eventually. Uh, it mightn't catch up with everybody. Um, the probably most relevant one relating to The Hague Convention is the attacks on the libraries in Mali, and, to, and, and um, again, people have been tracked down for that. Um, it's, it, it's a slow process. Um, but no, I think it's important that this legislation is there um, and I think it, uh, it does have an impact. Um, it's just slower than most of us uh, would like. Uh, in relation to the first question, in relation to the Hague Convention, I actually didn't catch it because I'm slightly blinded with the lights. Um, what was that question again? It's about digitization, is it? Uh, yeah. yeah. I actually haven't heard that one, but it's an intriguing one. Um, it's, uh, it's one that we should really kind of think about. Um, and it's the one that's going to become more and more prevalent um, I think over the next five years, I would agree. So I'm sorry, it's a yes answer to your question. Hmm. Were there any other responses from the four courts? Um, yeah. Sorry, do you want to go first with your, your um, technology? The one I can remember is the girl from the project in Trinity. Yeah, different. different. Um, are you involved with the the Lost Theatre project? No. The okay. So that was, that was another project we were involved with whereby architectural drawings have been used um, to recreate, again, using 3D um, imagery. Again, it's a Trinity-based project. And we did the Lost Theatre Archive, and so we did Theatre Royal, which was um, in three incarnations. And I think we had the architectural OPW plans from the 1930s. And again, we were able to conserve those in such a way that they were perfectly flat. So it meant that the scanning and imaging of those then facilitated the 3D, 3D modeling. And we were able to do something similar um, for the guys with the um, 
architectural plans um, for the PROI from the 1860s. In terms of expanding on my collaboration with moving forward, it's still in early, uh, in, uh, early stages, if I'm honest. Um, many ways to gain and, and garden support for it is to speak at events like this and to say this is what we really want to do with the resources. Um, just un unfortunately, um, there's nothing concrete. As I say, the eureka moment for me was a couple of weeks ago when I actually think I found things that will fit inside that Pringles can. Um, and believe me, you know, because essentially it's, it's, it was almost like looking for uh, a needle in a haystack. Um, but I think we found things. So I think all I can say is that we'll keep people updated. I am more than happy to talk and write and present. And that will be part of the, um, the col collaboration. Um, parameters will be that there will be papers um, published and presented on the work that we do and what we find out. this will be the last question, but for, for any of the panellists who want to answer it, where are we now most vulnerable? Where do we need to act now to protect culture in this country? Well, from our point of view, electronic records is a huge issue, and it is for everybody, because most people are now using computers and generating electronic records, and there is no... no. <laughs> Sorry, who's laughing at me? Me. <laughs> you. Anything more boring. Electronic records. Darling, <laughs> nobody would be able to find anything in 50 know, years, but that's why and they will love your sugar paper parcels and be thrilled with them, because exactly, there'll be all that will be left. Exactly. Be so I would just say, keep writing things down on paper. The paper and the vellum that's 400 years old will, I guarantee you, She's survive. a Luddite, a Luddite. I, I'm, quite happy to, I'm quite happy to be a Luddite. <laughs> to preserve, I mean, I hate Twitter and Facebook. I loathe Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, and I see no reason to make them richer than they already are. Nonetheless, I can see that they are valuable records of social history at this point in time. We have to be able to preserve all of this, as well as the, the records of state that have been generated since the 1970s now. Of course, because the Irish Civil Service is very mixed up on entirely different platforms everywhere, instead of there being some, you know, overseeing agency that made everyone do the same thing. Um, that has, is a real, genuine, pressing problem that, if it isn't solved quickly, it has, is already resulting in material that's been lost. Who can read a floppy disk anymore? You know, I mean, there, there's all kinds of trouble to be faced there. Now, that's just me taking an archival perspective. Yeah. Lara and, and Zoe, as custodians of our broader cultural heritage, may have many other things to be um, You know, Just in relation to um, the Hague Convention and, and Blue Shield, um, all the cultural institutions, all the libraries, the museums and archives in Ireland, everyone, all of us have disaster planning. We, we train in disaster planning. But uh, as it sets out in the Hague Convention, there also needs to be more planning at a, a national level, an international level. Um, we've spent a lot of the last eight years talking to Dublin Fire Brigade, the other fire services around the country. Um, they're very focused on saving people uh, and then saving buildings. Um, we're very focused, as I mentioned in the slides, on saving collections and buildings. So it's very important to, to talk to the first responders uh, and build up relations with them. They've come to our courses and they've learned how to, to deal with disasters. So I would encourage um, uh, everyone to engage with that idea is that we do need to plan, we need to practice, and we need to prepare uh, in the case of a worst case scenario. Be more than likely what can happen in Ireland is, is a natural disaster. And with the changes in our climate, flooding is going to be the big one. So I would encourage that. And the final element, just to back up what Katrina is saying, is when you go home, go to your backup hard drive and start printing off your family photographs. <laughs> on because, paper. On paper. Because reality is, um, if there is uh, any you know, cosmic solar surge, or if the Chinese or anyone else decides they just want bombs as field, um, you're going to lose everything in about three seconds. So um, do, do back up and do print off. It's Wonderful. the most fragile medium we have ever invented 
for the preservation of information and transmission of it. It's brilliant, it's wonderful, it reaches everywhere in the universe very quickly, but it can be snuffed out so quickly. I mean, stone was really the best thing for preserving it. <laughs> Eventually, we'll go back to it. I'll give it up. <laughs> Thank you very much. A wonderful note on which to conclude uh, that cheerful thought about the future. Uh, it's a very uh, special thing to have on the stage with us a, a, a conservator, a curator, and an archivist. And I think the collaborative and uh, cross-sectoral uh, um, panel that we've had today is exactly how we have to approach these things. We can't approach with each sector looking after its own interests. We must treat it societally. And we've been trying to do that through Out of the Ashes. Uh, and in that context, I just want to thank again the amazing team at The Hub, uh, Sean and Sarah Reynolds for their support. And to say, as I said at the outset, this is halfway through the Out of the Ashes series. There is one more lecture this um, academic semester in about seven weeks' time. The uh, very distinguished biographer of Napoleon, uh, Philip Dwyer, is, uh, he's usually in Australia, but he's on this side of the uh, world at the moment and will be coming to Trinity on the 9th of March to talk about issues such as cultural looting and destruction in modern European history. Generally, uh, his title is uh, Broken Bones, Broken Stones. Katrina. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Iconoclasm okay. in world history. So but do join us from that. On them that you could read. Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure that you're aware of that uh, and keep an eye on Out of the Ashes for its third season next year when we're looking at recovery and we have an incredible uh, lineup that will be joining us. Uh, but uh, to close, thank you all for coming this evening and please join me in thanking our amazing speakers. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities Literary created by Coral Sea. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.